Hey, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola, what five records would you want? Oh, and we'll get to know our guests along the way. First of all, uh, thanks to everybody who listened to the first few episodes of Mile High Stash. I went from being terrified to do this to, well, still being terrified to do this, but happy that people I love in places like Texas and Virginia tuned in, uh, as well as friends in, in Belgium where I played music a few years ago and uh, even the Scottish Isles um, where I made some lifelong mates, as they call them, right before the pandemic. Um, the notion of what albums you want during a zombie apocalypse is fun, but I also just really like getting to know people. And, and I like music. I often get to know people through talking about where they're from and, and talking about uh, music. Um, Joe Strummer has always been a huge a hero of, of mine. And I remember uh, listening to an interview with him when I was a teenager. And um, he always said the first thing that he asked people is, where are you from? And then he wants to know where they live right now and, and just from this sort of um, bottom of the ocean up to the top of getting to know somebody. Um, speaking of music, my kid is starting to really like music um, at 12 years old. I mean, it's always been around, but I think there's any situation that you grow, grow up in, you rebel. And I think my kid was really sick of music for a long time. But now it's it's like, oh, maybe I'll pick up a guitar and learn a Radiohead song. Uh, uh, my kid and I, over the last year, um, have been going to a lot of shows together, from Olivia Rodrigo and Phoebe Bridgers to Gorillaz. And it's nice that I get to go to shows for free uh, uh, to write about them. And lately, my kid comes with me. And uh, there was this... This, uh, I think it was the Phoebe Bridgers show at Red Rocks where I, I got up to get us um, a pretzel. I'm addicted to pretzels, but uh, a pretzel and uh, something to drink. And when I got back, my kid was uh, sitting there writing in my notebook <laughs> thoughts that might go into my article. And they did end up in there. And that was just moving, I guess. <laughs> You'll also hear my kid on this episode of Mile High Stash uh, at some point. Uh, this episode features, um, finally, a woman, uh, um, uh, Bonnie Sims, uh, the incredible, uh, prolific, badass Bonnie Sims of Big Richard, which is a band that is, that is just exploding right now. Um, as Bonnie knows, um, everything about Big Richard can be a that's what she said joke. So, you know, talking about Big Richard exploding. Yeah. <laughs> um, she is in the all-female um, bluegrass, uh, uh, although it's hard to just call Big Richard bluegrass, 
band um, and the Bonnie and Taylor Sims band. Um, she's been playing music her whole life. And unlike me, is actually a trained musician and not just a punk rock drummer. Uh, she's an incredible mandolin player, guitar player, singer, songwriter. Still, um, we identify, I think, because of our stubbornness when, when it comes to going for our dreams. Um, and it reminds me of that um, Charles Bukowski uh, line, what matters most is how well you walk through the fire. It's paying off for her recently with Big Richard um, and with her projects with her amazing husband, Taylor Sims. Um, we'll talk about that. Speaking of walking through the fire, um, I will reiterate that I have a slight speech impediment, sometimes slight, sometimes incredibly frustrating. So if you hear um, any clicks or pauses or a broken record, sounds there's not a glitch in your headphones it's it's a glitch in my in my speech and i'm not going to edit that out just so you know <laughs> anyway first a word from some great people helping make this show possible Located in Heavenly Gold Hill, Colorado, the Gold Hill Inn was built in 1924 and has been owned and operated by the Finn family for the last 60 years. The inn is known for its fabulous three- or six-course meals and unforgettable concerts by local artists, from Gasoline Lollipops to Gregory Allen Isakov. To get up to where time stands still, take Sunshine Canyon or Four Mile Canyon from Boulder and experience the Gold Hill Inn's wonderful food and music with all the fixings. Our first sponsor of this episode, who uh, we just heard a little about in a commercial that you're not aware of because, you know. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> it, was, it was in the ether, um, is the Gold Hill Inn. Oh, wow. And I wanted to ask you, um, what are, I mean, you probably have 200 and some memories of the Gold Hill Inn, but what are the what are the first ones that come to mind? Man, well, you know, the first memory of the Gold Hill Inn was seeing my husband's band Spring Creek play there, right? And just like thinking that was the ultimate venue in Colorado. And it I was is. like, I mean, and I just thought when I can play at the Gold Hill Inn, like that will be everything to me. So now, like knowing Brian and getting to play there, you know, multiple times a year, and for some of like the special festival stuff, and knowing Chris too, and um, mm -hmm. Nana and like everybody who works there, all is, the pins is all is really amazing. Yeah, Chris always like will cook something special or make something special and like bring me fudge on stage yeah. or yeah. you know give me shit and like cut up my meat for me and be like you needed this didn't you <laughs> and I'm like no but thank you. <laughs> I remember one of the first times I met you just just briefly. I mean we've been around each other in the music scene for a long time. We both played the Tom Petty tribute at the Inn back in September, October 2017. Sure. And we got an early snow, and I was um, in my Prius, and everybody else was gone. And I'm the drummer, so you know I got all this stuff to load up. Of course. So I was the last one, and I went outside thinking, oh, my God, after all the work I've done in order to load out, now i got to scrape off my car. And Chris was out there with a broom, and he was scraping my car off. It was amazing. Mm. 
Yeah, the yeah. Finns are they are special humans. They are very special humans. Yeah. Um, he's one of the only buyers that, like, when I write Brian an email, I'm like, love you. Like, yeah. you know, I can't help it. I do love him. Oh. And you don't, I don't say that to every buyer. Yeah. Like a, a good 30% maybe <laughs> that I've, like, gotten to know him, Dave Mack. You know, there's a certain mm. list. Well, some of them aren't just buying your your talent. They're buying your soul. And, totally. You know? and, and they're believing in your soul more. Mm. You know, it's like they are the ones who gave me gigs in the beginning before they had any reason to other than they just thought I was good enough to get a gig. It wasn't about like shit I'd already done, which is really cool. Like they're the people mm. who have like believed in me from my start on this scene and I love them dearly. Yeah. Well, I want to go way back. I want to know about Bonnie uh, in Texas. And, sure. Uh, and I wonder if you can take the Texas out of the lady or, or not. <laughs> you can't get the hell out of Texas. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the motto. I definitely, I was raised in, in Texas, born in Austin, grew up in Dallas, but my dad calls himself a, a reformed Yankee. So mm. he like, he grew up all over the world. Um, his dad was in the oil business. So my, my, my dad lived in Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, India, oh. South Africa, Iran. And then he always says, and then I moved to a very strange place called New Jersey. <laughs> so he... Um, has a very like eclectic kind of English boarding school raising, and um, and he was a stay at home dad who played music. My mom always had an office job and worked the straight job of the family, and um, he taught music lessons. He played children's music, and I started performing and singing with him literally on stage when I was three. I have some hilarious like local cable of me mm-hmm. singing as a little three year old, and they put the mic stand as low as it could go. And I still had to stand on like a big trunk because I was literally like two feet tall. (laughs) So I've always loved performing. It's definitely been a huge just escape and outlet for me as a human for having a lot of energy. I feel like I did okay in school, but I was definitely like, calm down, sit down, be quiet. And I could not handle those three directives. And performing gave me an opportunity to never calm down, never be quiet, never sit still. It's like, let me do all of the things I wanted to do as a human in a capacity that was celebrated instead of being like admonished as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I like really leaned into it very yeah. much so growing you up. You always do. You do You do lean into it though. I remember taking my kid to uh, see the Sister Wins Festival in, uh, at, mm. uh, at the Mish. Totally. Because uh, I'd interviewed Bridget uh, who put it together that year. And I realized something about you at that show i forget who you were playing with i was playing with liz barnes okay mm-hmm. and no matter the type of song or the tempo of the song you were into it as much as anybody could be into it your facial expressions and everything and so i'm wondering if like three-year-old bonnie was like that too. oh very much so like and even even to like a detriment like i like in this particular video that i have of me it's me and my brother and my sister singing around one microphone and I didn't want anybody else to sing on the microphone. So I kept mm. trying to like block them out right. and like put my hands up. And then when that didn't work, I was like pouting. Like I was like just, I'm a full, fully emotional creature at all times. And I've learned to like, obviously like behave better and not like throw a fit on stage. But like mm. I threw it, I threw a total fit and it was on live television. It's hilarious. That like I be, sat down and was pouting was with my lip viral. out. I know, right? No. I'm like, I kind of like, I need to put this on the internet. This is yeah. hilarious. Um, but I... I just feel like music is one of those things that it's like the feelings of it are so inescapable for me. 
And if I try to like swallow that or hold it back, it immediately starts to like swell up and be like a hundred times bigger than I can handle inside. And like letting it out physically and expression wise is the only way that I know how to like make it through whatever the song is. Even if I'm just listening to a song, sometimes mm-hmm. I see like myself at a show and someone will take a picture and I look like I'm like in pain. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like my face is all pain, but I'm like, I'm just really feeling the music at that moment. Yeah. And I can't help but like translate that with my body and my face and my expression. Well, it's the same with sex. If you saw someone's face, you'd be like, are they in pain? <laughs> are they okay? Or, no. <laughs> and there is this saying that when you see someone on stage and they're really into it, that's what they look like when they have sex. So, I fully believe that. You know. Probably very true for me. I yeah. think that's why we love artists is like that revealing of intimacy. Like even though it's not in a sexual capacity necessarily, mm-hmm. there might be like sexualness about it just based on someone's like, you know, some people just, I'm a Scorpio, so I radiate sexual energy. Can't help it. Yeah. But like that idea of, yeah, it's an intimate look into someone's expression. Expression is so like, condemned in a lot of parts of society and it's like reserved for certain things and music is one of the things that we get away with it like to the max and i love that about music and there's other things where if you talk too much like with too much passion or too much expression you're like you're getting angry or heightened or crazy Mm -hmm. you know you get like labeled with these negative connotations when you're just like trying to feel and tell something but with music you can do that and it gets celebrated usually i mean there's definitely like you can't say anything in music. You can't be like, you know, I like short of like hate speech and like bigotry yeah. in music. I think that most things like we talk about death, we talk about wanting to die, we talk about what it's going to be like when we die. We talk about heartache. We talk about like our faults and our own insecurities and stuff and we in a way that is like relatable and connected, so it like it almost like in a way celebrates them, but also just like connects us because it's like we all feel that way. Yeah. So getting to like wit- witness that and then channel it myself is like the holiest and best thing that I have in my life for sure it's it's one of the few places in life where you can truly lose yourself oh 100% and people will pay totally and they will like not be able to do it themselves so they will do it through you and they'll feel that same relief and that same like expression and you and you got to like kind of do it together like lead the ship or lead the charge a little bit Yeah, which I think is like a like not to get too like, you know, self-important, but I think that there's a there's like um, there's a weight that comes with that in society because we don't have a lot of that left, like from person to person. We don't have a lot of that those avenues, and music is one of those like pretty heavily trafficked avenues. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm really glad to be immersed in it and know the people that I know that make music and get to have that and share with them. I think yeah. it's fucking incredible. We'll get to that. those people yeah Uh, how soon after this age of three um tantrum performance did you know that music was was it for you well i i knew that i wanted to be a singer i never wanted to be anything else than a singer my entire life Uh, my dad has this really cute drawing that i did in kindergarten of like it was a self-portrait of course and it was just like a, a lady singing with her arms out in a big circle for a mouth and like i drew her little what is it called you know like the hangy down thing in the back of your throat Oh gosh, what is that Ooh, called? Um, God or something? Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, I drew that, and I, and I remember I gave it to a friend's mom, and that friend gave it to my dad and was like, "You need to have this." And my dad still has it framed Aww. in his studio. And um, I literally never wanted to be anything else. I always said it's funny. It, it changed shape because when I was little, 
I told everybody, I said, I'm going to be famous. That's what I always said. Like, that that was the goal was, mm-hmm. like, fame. And I really wanted to be on TV. So I would audition for, like, I auditioned for every kid's show that filmed in Dallas. Nice. Um, and I didn't, like, I remember auditioning for Barney. And it was, like, a really traumatic experience because I was, like, third grade. So I was, like, eight years old. And I went through, like, multiple auditions. It's, like, a process. And I got to the last audition, and it's in front of, like, ten producers. And they were like, you sing really great, but your voice is too unique. That's what they told me. So I couldn't be on Barney. And it, like, broke me as a little kid. Like, I was like, no, I'm not not unique. I'm I'm a good singer. (laughs) And now looking back, I'm like, fuck, yeah, I was too unique for Barney. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Well, the kids who got that job, you know. Yeah, well, they did. I mean, a lot of them went on to, like, Disney and, like, that stuff. And so, and I totally, like... I auditioned for, like, Little Mermaid shit for Disney. Like, I auditioned for everything I could audition for as a kid. I was, like, obsessed with that. I really wanted to be on TV. Um, and I actually sang. Do you remember the show Wishbone? Like, with, like, the little dog? I don't think so. I it, it was, like, it was a PBS a show. <laughs> but I sang on that theme song. So that's my one, like, childhood claim to fame. Oh, that's great. Where I was like, I sang on a theme song of a show. And I was very proud of myself because I was, like, fourth grade. And I just – it was something that I really – wanted to do I think for like a lot of different reasons some that I've grown out of thank God because I feel like if fame is the objective it's like a really empty objective yeah and now at this point in my life I'm like I want to write good songs I want to play music that feels good I want to play venues that are fun you know it's like that is not the objective anymore like luckily I grew out of that but I still like as a kid like if you had asked me what I wanted to be I would say I want to be a famous singer yeah like period so I knew really early on that I wanted to do that. And I started playing guitar when I was 11. I got a guitar for Christmas when I was 10, I think. And it just sat around for a year. And then my dad came up to me one day and he just goes, are you going to ever play that guitar or what? And I was like, oh, my God. Challenge. Challenge extended. And I like immediately was like, yeah, I'm going to play it. And I like sat in my room until I could play Will the Circle Be Unbroken nice. without like stopping for the chord changes you know and like that was it after that I I was hooked I used to walk to this nursing home that was like one block away from my house and play music every Saturday just you know for the old people in the nursing home and I remember that because it was like it was like a state nursing home so it was not like a fancy one like the ones in Boulder at all it was like Richardson Texas like you know really bare bones and once like really close to me going in and starting doing this this one old lady was like you know, she probably had dementia, so it's like nothing against her at all, but she was screaming at me the whole time, just going, you stink, you stink. And it's like burned into my brain, like that wow. experience. And I was like, I just stood there and sang the whole time anyways, as like a little 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I have to keep doing it. Even though she thinks I stink, I cannot stop. I cannot give in to this old mm-hmm. woman. I'm going to keep going. So like those kind of experiences early on made me be like, I'm going to do this forever, without a doubt. Like, I will never stop. As long as I can, I'll do it. That was like your version of Dylan getting booed you know, when he went electric yes, in the nursing home. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then when did you have like your first band? Or, or Sure. Well, so my dad played kids music until I was 14. And then when I was 14 and I started playing the mandolin, he and I started playing like bluegrass shows and what mm-hmm. he called like folk grass yeah. um, together. So we played like at all the Barnes and Nobles around Dallas and um, at I had an annual gig at this theme park at Six Flags for the Heritage Festival. So for the whole month of September, every weekend we would play together there. 
and then played in like Branson at Silver Dollar City and got some we were on like the te- Texas Commission for the Arts touring artist roster so we got wow. a bunch of like he was a big like public library circuit person like he loved playing libraries so we played a ton of public libraries um growing up going on tour with that yeah me and so awesome. me and my dad yep totally and he like I mean I still have so many things that I do because he did them as far as just mm-hmm. like clipboards with details like I have to have a clipboard if I'm going to a show I'm like I got on my clipboard with my piece of paper that says the shit I need to know about yeah. this gig and like that is totally a Mike Krusiger thing and then also and you were what like 13 yeah like 13 mm. 14 15 16 like all through a junior high and high school we played together wow. and I have some really adorable like family band CDs that for a while I thought they were cringy but now I'm past the point of like thinking that they're lame and I'm like they're so adorable again like, I love them. Even though, like, the first CD we made, I had only been playing the mandolin for nine months. Mm-hmm. So, like, all my solos were like, like, they're all, like, really, like, plucky sounding. You can hear the pickle out on the strings. And, like, obviously I'm figuring out how to do it. But at the same time, like, I love it now when I listen. I'm like, this is so cool. Because I also feel like I sound, I sound like a younger me, but I sound just like me. Like, I do... I appreciate the Barney producer feedback because I do feel like I have a unique voice. Like I feel like that's a true statement. And I I feel like I've, my dad was always really big about like, because I loved Reba McIntyre when I was a kid. I was like Mm -hmm. obsessed with Reba. And I tried to like like impersonate her voice pretty much when I was singing. And my dad one time was like, you have to sing like you. You have to stop doing that. You have to sing with your own voice. And like that just like one of those things when somebody tells you something, you're like, and like hits you different. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's one of those things that I was, like, he's right. Like, I need to sing with my own voice. And so from that time on, I was just, like, okay, what do I sound like? And that's a whole journey of discovery. Yeah. So. One of the special things about a Big Richard is that on the, you know, the live album, you can really tell not only the uniqueness of each voice, but the power of each voice mm. and and what makes it special. And so uniqueness is yeah yeah i feel like that's a huge facet of of big richard we're three lead singers and we all have radically different tone choices and ranges and approaches to singing Mm -hmm. but then when we sing together there's this like magical blend somehow and we like all blend together which is pretty unique like i've i feel like blend is just it's kind of like the roll of the dice. You never know what your blend's going to be with another singer. Yeah. And Emma and Joy and I, and Eve when she sings too, we yeah. just all have a really great blend. And I love that about yeah. those girls. Like so much fun to make music with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So the um, the premise of this show is that uh, you are trapped in a cabin in in... Uh, in the mountains in Colorado, which you know well, so you could probably imagine <laughs> where you would be. Um, and um, <laughs> there are zombies around, okay. and you don't know if uh, everyone you've ever known in your life is, is you know, eaten sure. or not. But you're okay for now, and you have a um, cachet of uh, food and uh, spring water, <laughs> and you have a crank-powered Victrola. So that's it. That's all you got, except for five albums. So uh, what's your first album you would want? I love it. I thought so hard about this. Okay, (laughs) my first album is maybe my favorite album growing up. It was Best of New Grass Survival. 
It was a best of record. Um, Newgrass Revival was a four-piece band in the 80s and 90s, a four-piece bluegrass band. Sam Bush, it was his, like, you know, he did other projects before that, I think, but this was, like, the one that really launched him into, like, king of newgrass status. Bela Fleck, John Cowan, and Pat Flynn. And I'm pretty sure, like, John Cowan, as a kid, I didn't really know if he was a man or a woman because he's just so beautiful, and he has, Mm -hmm. like, big, fluffy, like, huge like Nashville mullet where it's all swept back and cascading mm-hmm. down like Marty Stewart you know right. so I think as a kid I was like do I want to be him or do I want to be in love with him and I couldn't really decide <laughs> but I think now it's like now I really want to be the love child of Sam Bush and John Cowan like I think if they had a baby it would be me like that's what I want to be <laughs> and you got to, to play with Sam Bush this oh. year right yes what was that like it was so magical like I literally I'm not gonna cry but I <laughs> I've looked up to him my whole life. Like, he's the reason I wanted to play the mandolin. I saw this PBS special when I was, like, eight. It was the Will the Circle Be Unbroken tour with, like, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, right. Jimmy Martin, uh, John Denver, and Newgrass Revival. And they sang Don't You Hear Jerusalem Moan? And it's, like, the best gospel song that I know. I love it so much. I love that. And I taped the PBS special, and I would watch it all the time, like, on VHS. Just pop that shit in and be like, let's watch this. And so getting to play with him was like transcendent. Like it was a, and the fact that we've, Big Richard has, you know, we opened for him at Washington in February. We played with him at, at Big Sky, Big Grass. And then of course, Rock, Rocky Grass mm-hmm. and Tell You Ride was really special because he knows who we are at this point, which is really cool. Like I never knew that Sam Bush would know who I am. Mm-hmm. And he like came on stage at Tell You Ride and gave each of us a hug. And told us, kick them right in the ass, ladies. Kick them right in the ass. Like, they deserve it. Kick them in the ass. And it, we were so nervous for that set. Like, we were so nervous. And that was like this, all four of us talked about how, like, when he did that, it was like this crazy calm just spread over us. And we, like, came together. And we're like, we're just playing for each other. Let's just mm-hmm. let's just do it. Yeah. You know, let's not, like, worry about the 10,000 people that are screaming right now, which was a hard thing not to worry about. But it, he totally, we felt like we literally got blessed by the saint of bluegrass. <laughs> like it was amazing. So then getting to go to Rocky Grass and he like gave me a solo and called me by name. He's like, here's Bonnie on the mandolin. Like that, I watched that Facebook clip like an embarrassing amount of times. Uh-huh. Like I watched it over and over again and just cried the next day. It was like full circle. And my dad was there and he like got to come backstage and him and Sam were like talking and Sam was like, you must be really proud. And I had to like walk away Mm -hmm. because I was like, I can't handle this. And I feel like they're having a moment. So I'm going to let them have a moment together (laughs) as like, you know, rad old dudes in bluegrass. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty life changing. So you went to college in, uh, in Texas, right? Yep. Music school. Yep. What school? Went to South Plains College in Leveland, Texas. What was your major? My major was mandolin, was my discipline, and vocals with a focus on yodeling. A focus on yodeling? Yep. Oh, wow. I did two years of private yodeling lessons. You got some of that for us? (laughs) (laughs) I totally could if you really want it. (laughs) Yeah, why not? Oh, God. I'll have to go get my guitar, but I would. I will sing a yodeling song for you if you so desire. We don't have we don't have to do that right now, but that would be amazing. I will totally yodel a little tune for you. Yeah. Um, if we can like push stop and I'll go grab my guitar. Yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah. Well, there's a cowboy that I know riding in a rodeo. He's a fella that really makes me moan. Well, I love him and he loves me, and that's the way it'll always be. But he drives me crazy when we're talking love. 
says he always turns to you. You lady, you lay, you lowered your 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 lay, you Out of breath yodeling. <laughs> Did your dad play you um, Jimmy Rogers when you were growing up? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely loved Jimmy Rogers. Loved, there's this amazing, amazing yodeler. You should totally look him up called Elton Britt. Elton Britt. And he, he's got this version of chime bells, which is like one of the most classic. Like it's a, if you yodel, you yodel chime bells. But it's got, he does like, he holds a falsetto note that is literally higher than I can sing. And he holds it while they play the entire melody to... Dixie, like the they play that whole song while he holds one note, and it's from like the 30s, so you know it's completely legit. He's actually doing it, no tricks, you know, no studio tricks available. So, let's fast forward a little bit. I know from your husband Taylor Sims some things that maybe I'm remembering right, or maybe not, but he finished school first. Yep. And he ended up out here and had a band that was very successful. Totally. And um, he really wanted you to move out here. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you said, well, you got to marry me. Totally. I, yeah. I basically, like, there were these two friends of mine at college that were moving to Nashville. Their names were Penny and Katie Clark. They were twins, six feet tall, played the banjo and the mandolin, and they were just righteous. And I, like, loved singing with them. And we did a lot of, like, singing together. They did a lot of singing together because they're twin sisters and they've been a band for since like birth, basically. But whenever school was ending, we were kind of like at the end of school, you had to do you had to make like a press kit and be like you had to make a band if it was fake or if it was real. You know, you had to like present like there was performance and promotion. That was one of the classes. So you had to learn how to like sell yourself with a press kit. And so I made a press kit with them because I was like, "Mm, I like playing music with them. Mm -hmm. And. I came out to Colorado on spring break and told Taylor, he was like, I want you to move out here. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to Nashville with Penny and Katie. And I was like, unless you want to get married or something. Mm-hmm. And then we went to the mall and bought a ring that day. Aww. And he was like, yes, I want to marry you. So I'd always tell him I proposed. Right. So. Yeah. But then he like kept it in his pocket for like three days and made me wait. And then like popped the question by the river and lions. So he like had his little moment of being like very classic, you know, mm. he definitely like, has a a a traditional side in the best way, like in the best ways of those kind of old world things of like opening the door for me or, yeah. you know, helping me in different ways of being like, I want to provide for you. You know, like yeah. he has that kind of mentality, which is awesome. He's an awesome guy. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. Um, I played a show with him on Saturday night and had a great time. And um, every time me and, and Clay Rose have mm-hmm. Taylor on guitar, I feel I feel intimidated because he's so good and it feels like it's it's barely even music it's more like a pickup basketball game sure and you're so in it with him you're just passing the ball back and forth and then high-fiving and all that and it's just so it's just so much fun I love that yeah he said he had a great time too Mm -hmm. I love that he is yeah he literally plays guitar for hours a day I mean he always has it in his hands, even when he's doing something else, like mm-hmm. something like kind of like uninvolved, like television or something. He's a he's a sit with the electric guitar, not plugged in, watch TV kind of guy. Or so wow. he can be like, it's just like really quiet, you know. Right. And but he's always practicing, and 
more often than not, he locks himself in like the downstairs bathroom with the metronome. <laughs> and that's what I come home to a lot is like, and like rad guitar licks. Yeah. Moncton Guitars has been selling vintage guitars, amps, and effects for 31 years and now has a brick-and-mortar shop conveniently located between Denver and Boulder, just off Highway 36 in Broomfield. In addition to a fine selection of vintage and used gear, Moncton Guitars also carries new equipment from major brands like Epiphone, Guild, and Marshall, along with a great selection of Colorado-built instruments. Moncton also offers accessories, lessons, and inexpensive but expert repairs and setups. So check out MonktonGuitars.com today for more info or just stop by. That's M-O-N-K-T-O-N Guitars in Broomfield. So, you know, you have like Sonny and Cher, you got Neil and and Peggy, and you got uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, and these relationships all you know fizzle so what is it about you guys you know i think as much as we love playing music together and that's a huge facet and our career is a huge facet of our relationship i feel like we've kept it like really basic in a way like a huge like we are about taking care of each other so like there's elements of that where like i book the gigs and he loads the stuff up like there's elements of that that are career colored but then there's just, like, we just take care of each other in ways outside of, like, playing music together and making money at playing music together. We, He cooks for me every day. I pick up all his laundry and put it in the laundry basket because that's really hard, you know, and then I wash it. And so it's like we, we just, I don't know, we've been together 17 years. We got married when I was 20. People always freak out when I say, like, we've been together 17 years. Now they're like, oh, my God, how old are you? <laughs> Like, well, we started dating when I was 18. Yeah. So, like, right at college, I just, it's kind of funny because, like, the Bluegrass Department had, like, six girls and, like, 40 dudes. So I felt like, I kind of felt like queen shit when I got there. I was like, who am I going to fall in love with? Yeah. Look at my options. Everybody wants, you know, it's like, they all are like, where are the girls? And I'm like, here I am, but I get to pick. Yeah. And so yeah. I feel like I chose really good. Like, I chose, chose wisely. very wisely Yeah. Um, in that moment. And... Yeah, I just, I don't know, we just care about each other a lot outside of, of playing shows. You know, he's been one of the biggest supporting fa- forces for Big Richard. Mm-hmm. And there's elements of it. Ooh, I'm not going to cry again. There's elements of it that, like, when he was in a band and I was 20 and I was, like, I wanted to play music with him so bad. And I was, like, working at Starbucks and I was radically unhappy with my life. Yeah. Didn't, didn't play music, was working a service industry job. It just sucked, you know? And... I would cry to him and I would be like, I want to play music with you. Like, why do we get married? Like, don't you want to play music with me? And like, eventually, you know, it took like three years later, but then he did. And he, his band ended. And a huge component of that was me on his shoulder being like, please come play music with Mm -hmm. me instead. And like forcing that a little bit. And now the tables have, have turned um, radically. Mm -hmm. And I have this project that he's not a part of. And there's a part of that that like is such a old wound for me. Like I feel so hypocritical and like how can I ask him to support something 
that he's not in when when I was younger I didn't do that really I was just like radically like I wanted him to be with me so bad and I wanted to play music together so bad yeah and I know that our lives are a lot different now um we both have like established musical roots outside of each other like he does awesome gigs with you and clay and like does like pick up stuff that he really enjoys with musicians that he really respects and you also have this other project that we haven't even mentioned yet that totally. really is taking off totally you know? yeah we have it's i have like a holy trifecta right now yeah. of music and so i'm just trying to like and he like he was the person because at the beginning i was like i can't do this band without you i don't want to that's not right that's not i i didn't let you do that so why should you let me do that and he was the one who was like you have to like he was like you absolutely have to this is really special and you guys have a lot of potential and this is gonna like take off you have to do this and he and like he pushed right. me to stay in in big richard and to make it a thing and like you know yeah no and i just really like i have so much i feel so like indebted to his graciousness and his humble like he's so humble about it and just like i was like it doesn't matter if i'm not involved this is incredible you guys are going to do big stuff you have to do it and so I just trusted him. He loves the band, and he's he's so proud of you. And, and uh, when I've asked him about it, he he's I think he, he's in awe of the, the musicality of it, but then also the the empowerment of it. You know, the, the whole uh, it's like Riot Girls playing banjos totally. type thing. You know, and yeah, yeah. There's an element of there's been a lot of women in bluegrass that I respect and that have come has has come before and that are incredible and they've paved the way for a band like Big Richard, but we are doing it in kind of a middle finger power slide kind of way, which mm -hmm. I feel like that's the only appropriate way for me to be involved in the bluegrass world mm -hmm. because I just feel like there's so much they want so much like bowed head reverence and I only want to do it if I can like do it in like cut off shorts and say fuck a lot to the microphone. Like, yeah. That's yeah. what I want to do in the bluegrass world. Cause I just, I like, I like the idea of kind of breaking the stereotype of what women are specifically in that genre of music. I feel like it's very like, it tends to be rather narrow. Um, so I like stepping outside of that boundary and playing with fire. I like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the subject of, of Taylor, I hate to tell you, but he won't be with you in, in this cabin. <laughs> so um, that's unfortunate. But I know. you got four more albums to, to choose. Okay, my next album, I'm kind of going in chronological order, is also another bluegrass album. Um, Allison Krauss and the Union Station, Every Time You Say Goodbye is the title. And that is one of those records that I can sing every solo on it. I know every word of every song. I know every instrumental like break. I can sing the melody of it. It just... My dad had a, he basically had only rounder records or like rounder CDs when I was yeah. growing up. And I would go through and I would pick out all the women fronted bands and I would like make a little special stack of them on the shelf. And I'd be like, okay, and we had a five CD changer, you know, those cool old things, you know? Yeah. So I would put in like Claire Lynch, Alison Krauss, Rhonda Vincent, Dolly Parton, you know, Alison Brown, Larry Lewis, and like just put it on random select and repeat. But out of all those, Alison Krauss's, by far um, one of my favorite singers in the entire world and just has, she's a person who has a ton of, of grace and poise on stage in a way that's like very reverent. But I've heard through the bluegrass, like word of mouth, 
that she's like a terrible potty mouth and loves poop jokes. And there's this crazy story. I'm going to tell it on this podcast, even though it's bluegrass like folklore basically at this mm-hmm. point. So Adam Steffi is the mandolin player in her band. And he was married to another fiddle player. I'm not going to say her name. She was in another bluegrass band. And she apparently, they were getting a divorce and she had cheated on him. And when they got off tour, Alison Krauss went in this woman's house, like Adam Steffi in her house, and took a shit in one of her cowboy oh, boots. Oh, Lord. And that's a real story. Like, everybody in the bluegrass world knows that story. Like, Allison pooped in her boot. <laughs> like, it's the coolest. Like, she's, like, so, like, loving her and then, like, knowing that about her makes it, even if it's just made up, which I right. really don't think it is. I swear, like, I've heard it from so many people. It's, like, again. You deserved it. It's, yeah, it's bluegrass yeah. folklore. And yeah. so she went up, like, ten levels in my book when I heard that. <laughs> so Taylor uh, um, quit his band Spring Creek? Yep, and the band yeah, kind yeah. of like naturally ended. Yeah. Everybody was ready to move on. They'd been right. a band for 12 years at that point. And then he became a Clyde. Right. Bonnie and the Clydes. Yep, yep. For a long time. For a long time, yeah. until really until the pandemic. Right. I feel like, yeah, it was Bonnie and the Clydes because before I started it without him. So yep. it would have been Bonnie and Taylor Sims, but it's like he was for like two, two and a half years, I guess I had the band, maybe two years I had the band with another guitar player, um, this guy, Aaron McClowski, who's in a band called Woodbelly now. Oh, yeah, Woodbelly's great. The banjo player in Woodbelly. Oh, yeah. Used to play electric guitar in Bonnie and the Clydes. And um, a, a different array of fiddle players. I had a chick, Frida Rosen, um, and then Christy Schneider for many years. Um, and then she started, you know, she had a kiddo, and she was going to be a mom, and so she was not gigging as much. And then a really great fiddle player named Nancy Steinberger, and multiple steel players. Chris Ramey played steel with us at first. And then Glenn Taylor, who's amazing and was a huge part of the Bonnie and the Clyde sound. And then, yeah, and then a whole parade of rhythm sections. Yeah. So we never really, it was not like the, I'm always like envious of bands like the Gas Pops in that they, you know, it's just like they managed to keep members for a long time. I feel like people traded out like all every like two years, Bonnie and the Clyde oh, would yeah. have like a reboot. And have like different folks, you know, which is always hard because you kind of start over with a new band and you have mm-hmm. to like be like, all right, we got to learn all those songs that we already knew with those other people again. Oh, God. Yeah. And learn everything that you don't like about each person. Too. Yeah, totally. And then get <laughs> to know them more and then they quit. And then, <laughs> well, you know, Gas Pops and Bonnie and the Clydes um, aren't musically similar, but the paths um, that they both took. It is um is similar yeah um just in that they were both around for a long time and you would see um you know gas pops at waterloo gas pops at oscar oscar blues totally seemingly like oh these guys will play anywhere totally and then a shift happened where you start saying no mm. to things and start valuing yourself and um, it takes off because you're not waiting for other people to 100%. value you. 100%. Yeah, I think this is the, this. I mean, other industries probably the same, but I really, I tell people you have to graduate yourself. You have to be like, okay, I have outgrown that. And the power of no is one of the most powerful things in this industry. Yeah. It really is because I don't know how many bands or, or not bands, like venues or breweries that I've said, no, I'm not going to play that gig for Three hundred dollars mm-hmm. on a Wednesday night, but if you have a special event, keep us in mind. Yeah, 
and when you have when you have this kind of budget and then they come back around and they're like we're having our annual what's what party mm-hmm. and we have this much money can we play now and i'm like yes we will yeah. like that kind of thing where when you do value it and you hold out for the better gigs the better gigs come around i, yeah. I fully believe that it took me a long time to convince clay and and donnie and, and the gas pops to say no to these guaranteed weekly gigs or monthly gigs where you sure. make a tiny bit of money and say, you know what? We're not going to play around here for a while. And yeah. then we're going to play at the Fox Theater. Heck yes. And we're going to spend all this time promoting. That's scary for people who have oh. been doing the same thing for a long time. And know they are getting something and they can continue to get it. But once you value yourself and you say no to things, not only does it make people value you and make you value yourself and your own, own art, but mm. it also makes you attractive. You can sell tickets. 100%. <laughs> yeah. When you, I mean, that's one thing. Yeah. I've learned a lot of like new booking lingo, but starving the market. You have to starve the yeah. market so that you can have success in the market. And mm-hmm. when you overplay and you oversaturate, yeah. you're not going to have good ticketed shows. Yeah. But and then so. the pandemic came and you couldn't play anyway. <laughs> exactly. So then maybe that helped. <laughs> maybe that kind of helped out. That starved the market to the max yeah <laughs> and then this opportunity came along called everybody loves an outlaw yes which is kind of like gorillas but like an outlaw country version of gorillas <laughs> because it's not a real band yet right i'm not sure how to describe that yeah well it's so it started as a sync licensing project mm-hmm. so it started with a producer who actually he used to live in boulder and he just asked around um, other musicians, and he's like, "Do you know anybody who can sing like really rocky, dark country, like a female? I want a female voice." And um, this musician that I know, Colin Robinson, just said, "Hey, do you know Bonnie Sims?" And Robbie, our producer partner, he like went on our YouTube and watched a bunch of videos and was like, "This could work." Mm-hmm. And then he emailed me, and it's one of those funny emails because you always think like. I'm a producer from LA and I want to make you a star. Sounds like spam. Like, right? Exactly. It sounds like spam. So he entered it being like, Colin gave me your contact. And if he hadn't done that, I probably would have been like, this is a, this is spam. This is some kind of, you know, gimmick or like hoax where they're trying to get my credit card number so they can right. fucking steal my identity and rob me. Mm-hmm. Um, but since he led with that, I was like, Oh, I know Colin, you know, that little, that one little bridge connected us. Yeah. And he, in 2018, he came over to our house with me and Tay and just like, we spent like probably like three days in a row of him coming over and us just playing every song for him that we knew or that we like that we had written or that we knew how to sing and him just kind of listening and like taking it all in and like jamming with us on guitar because he plays he's an amazing musician as well and um at the end of it he was kind of like okay i think this could work like give me your vocal range because i'm going to build these tracks because it's very high production you know it's not just like oh, let's get in the studio and record everything live. No, it's like 30 guitars and Taylor's a a few of them, but there's like a thousand other sounds on there too. So, and I remember when he left, he was like, well, I hope this works out because you have a unique range. You're like a little bit lower than normal female singers. So I'm going to have to trash these tracks. I'm going to spend all these time building these tracks. I hope this works out. And I was just like, oh God, well, I hope it works out too now. The pressure's on. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. he's basically like, don't screw this up because it's going to be trash if you do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... And then we went in the studio and recorded four songs that he had written. And um, they kind of just sat on a shelf for two years and got some, like, 
low-level placements where you know you get like a tiny bit of money but it's super small because it's just that's like the nature of the sync world i feel like all of the people in sync licensing go for quantity over quality of the placements not the music the music has to be quality but they're okay with like being a 10 second background thing in a bar while people walk through like that you still get paid there's still music being played in the movie even though you can't really distinguish it and it's not you guys got the entire song into a movie yeah i see red that was yep that was the turning point for us and it was a rather uh ridiculous slash risque movie I mean, it's like softcore porn, it's basically. It's completely porn. I tell people, yeah. me and Taylor are the only couple to make it in porn without having to take our clothes right. off. <laughs> so, like, we did it fully clothed. And, yeah, it was a trip. It was, and it was one of those things where, again, with sync licensing, you sign over, like, the licensing rights, of, like, who can say where it goes, to mm-hmm. a, we signed it over to a big library that Robbie works with a bunch. So, yeah. you don't even know that it's being used or how it's being used. So we just woke up. It's like March of the pandemic. All of our shows are canceled. Our whole life has changed. And we're like, oh man, we're not going to play music for, I don't know how long. Nobody knew how long at that point. We were kind of like, is this the new world that we live in? Like stay home, wipe off your groceries. Like Mm -hmm. a very strange world. And then in the beginning of June, I woke up one morning to like, 10 emails, Instagram messages, text messages, messages on every like social media platform, like direct messages Mm -hmm. from a whole multitude of labels being like, we want to talk to you about your song. I see red. And I was just like, what? So I had to kind of like do a double take. And the reason they knew it's funny because I kind of skipped ahead, but like Robbie had messaged me a few days prior and been like, oh, our song's doing really good on YouTube. It went from like, 100,000 to 5 million in the last 24 hours. Like something's happening with this song. And and I just posted about that because I post about everything on social media. Yeah. I'm a total believer in this free platform and using it for publicity. And I believe in the validity of it and the momentum that you can garner with enough interaction and sharing. Yeah. And so I'm a chronic poster, if you will. So I immediately posted that. I was like, oh my God, our song is going viral. And, like, that connected the dots for the people who were, like, looking for whose song this is. Right. Um, so, like, a bunch of record labels contacted us. And it was one of those experiences where you're, like, like, I remember getting up to pee. And I look at my phone in the morning because I'm addicted. Mm. So, I'm, like, sitting there peeing. I'm all, like, bleary-eyed and being, like, what? Republic Records. Sony. Universal. Sony Turkey. Sony UK. Like, all these, like, different countries. And I was just like, this is crazy. This is real. Like, this something is happening. Like, I don't know what it is, but something is happening. And so, of course, like, you know, having that experience as a mainly, like, bluegrass kid who grew Mm. up playing bluegrass and folk and acoustic music to, like, kind of left turn into high pop production, highly commercial, very, like... um, just like the kind of numbers that you don't really foresee for yourself as an acoustic artist. And what a disorienting experience because it's almost the opposite <laughs> of Big Richard where there's an album, you know, there's content, but you you can't play shows because of the pandemic. Whereas with Big Richard, there's all these shows, but not an album yet. Totally. You know, totally. It is the opposite. And it's like Big Richard is like, completely raw completely like what we can do in the moment and it's very like connected to my identity like i kind of say like big richard is like who i am and like everybody lives an outlaw is who i can be 
Right. Like it's a very much like a musical costume. Yes, a costume mm. completely. And it's a fun one and I love it. And at this point it fits pretty good and I'm like used to wearing it. So um, Everybody Loves an Outlaw happens. It's weird and fun and <laughs> disorienting. Yes. And then um, I think it was, I think you told me that um, it was Eve who got an opportunity for a festival because um, the talent buyer or organizer of a festival had said, oh my God, I realized that our, our festival's happening. We have no female acts. Could you put a band together? Exactly. And, and the rest is history. Yep, that's exactly what happened. It was a private bluegrass festival in Castle Rock, and they just kind of looked at their roster, and they were like, whoops. So they called her because she had played there with other bands before, and they were like, can you do like a Women of Bluegrass review? Like, you know, and so we kind of like bristled slash laughed at that mm. like name or like designation of like Women of Bluegrass. Mm. And so we were like, We'll do it, but we're going to call it Spirit Dicks of the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> and so we started off, it was very like tongue in cheek and purposefully like kind of lampooning the fact that for a lot of buyers, like women on stage and like gender equity is an afterthought because it's not something we still have festivals that are all men. Like that still happens in lots of genres. And I will say that like Roots Acoustic Bluegrass Music has a plethora of amazing young female acts. There's other festivals and like other genres of music that suffer a lot more with like having straight male bills. Yeah. Um, so bluegrass does have options. So it's nice to see when those options are exercised and remembered. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of genres where female, especially female only bands are either an afterthought or like a gimmick. Totally. And you guys are, you gals are definitely not gimmicky. Totally. Yeah. We, we definitely, we kind of like make fun of the gimmick side of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, because we recognize that that is a, a perception that we're not going to be able to avoid completely. And so we again, lean into it with kind of like a middle finger attitude, um, and try to embrace it in the most like contradictory way of like, Oh, you think that watch this (laughs) like kind of vibe, you know? Um, yeah, because it's true. I mean, there just are, and I feel like country and bluegrass has like, pat in the past has had like a hokier element. Like there's like there's a little bit of that like gimmick just for the music genre in general. Like mm-hmm. they, you know, embrace that. Like on shows like, you know, Hee Haw and like having like the Darlings on the Andy Griffith show that was the Dillers. It was like a real bluegrass band that was amazing. But the banjo player always sat there with his mouth open and was like. <laughs> Like, that's how he played. It was like a character yeah. of, like, he's yeah. a dunce, you know? Mm-hmm. Even though, in reality, Doug Dillard is, like, super imaginative and crazy creative and, like, one of the most, like, out-of-the-box banjo players and did, like, wacky, cool shit. Mm-hmm. But he... Because that's how they were... Per- like, the perception that they used in media, that became, like, a little bit of an association with bluegrass specifically. So it's nice to kind of make fun of that 
historical element. Yeah. And then there's ele- and there's parts of it that I'm like I liked as a kid. You know, I love String Bean and like these like banjo comedians who like String Bean would like he sewed an outfit where he would his shirt was really long and his pants were like at his knees, so he looked all like like he had a torso that was like five <laughs> times longer than a normal torso, and he's a very tall dude and would like dance and play the banjo in this like goofy outfit. He's kind of mm-hmm. like a clown, like borderline clownish. Um, or Steve Martin would. Steve Martin also, yeah, has definitely like updated banjo comedy, but uses mm-hmm. a banjo in his comedy. The guy from um, The Office, Ed Helms, plays the banjo and does like that as part of his stand-up and has like jammed with people in Telluride. Like I've seen videos of him yeah. like at Bluegrass stuff, like playing music. Same with like John C. Riley. Like I saw he was playing like guitar oh, with yeah. Billy Strings and like yeah. there's this weird like there's that truth of like every comedian thinks they're a musician and every musician thinks they're a comedian. Mm. Which I personally identify with at a super high level. Like I am actually like me and Clay have bonded over this. I've been like, dude, I want to do stand up so bad. I think it's harder. I think it's harder than being like a a neurosurgeon. Completely. I think it's the final frontier performing. I think it's the most challenging. I think it is. You have to be like the ultimate amount of engaging to keep people looking at you when you're just talking and you don't have anything to fall back on to be like, okay, now I'm going to play a song. So that I know you like me and you'll clap. Right. You know, like that that thing of like, oh, the song's over, so we're going to applaud. Like there's this social expectation. Whereas like if it's comedy, they either laugh or they don't laugh or they clap or they don't clap. Or you can just keep talking to a quiet room. Like there's no mm-hmm. there's no like designated, hey, applaud for me now because I did my thing. Like you have to earn it with yeah. comedy. You have to earn any audience feedback. There's no expectation. If you suck, you might get heckled even. Like, So it's our dream to – we have a shared dream to go to an open mic and do our tie five <laughs> together. And we're slowly preparing. I can't wait for Clay what? Rose and Bonnie Sims at, at the... Our stand-up. Uh, <laughs> well, um, Big Richard is is known for the banter. And 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 it's it's not easy. Banter is not easy. You know? Yeah. Is that something that you, you talked about when you started the band? Or was it just spontaneously wonderful it was completely spontaneously wonderful (laughs) it's something that we've talked about like i definitely do a lot of talking um and make a lot of jokes and tell a lot of stories and yeah everyone's like pretty chill about it they don't really like the the cool part about big richard is that we let each other be ourselves and we support each other in being ourselves and part of me being myself is my impulsive mouth that runs 24 seven and the band has like embraced that and has like, let me lean into it. And there are, you know, I've told lots of stories that are hilarious and we've interacted with like the crowd in ways that I'm like, Oh, like looking back, I'm like, that was so unplanned and it was so fun. Yeah. You know? Magical. So we, yeah, the banter is, there's times when I'm like, Oh, I wish I had like, like that's the hard thing about stand-up is like you have to plan it, right? And like I feel like all my good stuff is like really off the cuff, random, really impulsive. And so I'm trying Are you to saying like, you don't repeat banter? I don't know if I believe. Well, we repeat a couple <laughs> things, but for the most part, yeah. We just like fly yeah. by the seat of our pants and literally like That's impressive. Make shit up. I mean, there's like a couple intros to songs that we'll yeah. repeat. And like I always say like or I will usually say like we believe in the spectrum of gender and like gender is a a wide a wide like spectrum and we're not going to be solely feminine or masculine we possess both energies and we lean into both energies like i'll say that at almost every show just cuz i really 
believe that too as a human. And I think that's something the four of us have really bonded over, the fact that we don't feel like only feminine, but we get perceived, especially as a woman on stage, as mm-hmm. needing to be like feminine, needing to like lean into that aesthetic and that behavior type. Like it's more about the behavior more than anything, more rather than about what we look like, you know, being like you need to act like a lady, you know, and I've always like bristled at that. To act like yourself. Yeah, I want to be myself and I'm yeah. fully human. I'm yeah. like I have the ability to lean into either side of my energies and I want to be allowed to. And I feel like we've given each other permission and space to do that with each other. So it's really fun. It, it must be inspirational for young people that go to um, um, a bluegrass festival and all of a sudden see these women on stage who uh, give no fucks about what your expectations are, you know, or that, you, you know, one of the reasons why I've strayed from that genre most of my life is because all the bands play the same songs too. It's like you got to play Shady Grove and you got to play this and you got to totally. play that. All of a sudden there's this band called Big Richard's doing Billie Eilish and Radiohead. Totally. Yeah, no, we've gotten a lot of that feedback that like, and that's true, I think of like any traditional music. It's like there's this songbook that we're all pulling from. But there's also like, yeah, you can, bluegrass is a flavor. Bluegrass is an interpretation. You can do that with any song. Mm-hmm. And so being able to do that with each other with songs like creep or like all the good girls go to hell or you know toxic or royals like we love doing pop covers just because first of all they make the crowd super happy and if if i'm nothing else i'm a performer first and i as a performer i think it's my job to like nurture their good time and like i want people to have a good time i don't want it to be like a bluegrass lesson of like here's the songs Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to know and you have to play the audience having a good time starts with you having a good time completely yeah completely and like if you're up there to teach them a lesson i think that's the opposite of a good time yeah or if you're up there to show them what bluegrass is and like define it for them again opposite of a good time yeah like i think that and i there was this really potent speech by jerry douglas at the ibma's probably like five or ten years ago but it was about how like we need to start welcoming in new younger bands because the genre is dying and it's dying because we have a chokehold on what is bluegrass. And like the idea of like what is bluegrass is a very like can be a very condemning thing because people use it to like ice people out and be like, well, that's not bluegrass. You're doing this in your bands or you're not a bluegrass band anymore. And so getting to play bluegrass in the capacity of kind of being, I like to say we play like beyond bluegrass also Mm -hmm. because we use bluegrass elements, but we do a lot of different stuff and, we also use a lot of like old time elements, which is the predecessor of bluegrass, which I think I want is... to ask you about that. Yeah. After you tell me what your third choice for a record is. Okay. Third choice. I'm going with the record that changed my acoustic guitar life. Like when I was a senior in high school, I found Patty Griffin and found the record Living with Ghosts and was completely changed by this record. Definitely, um, I learned every single song off it. There's only, I think there's only 10 songs, not only, but there's 10 amazing songs on there, like literally incredible. And I love this record because once I found out the story behind it, like she, they were her demos and she got signed to a label and they flew her to like Nashville or LA. She lived in New York and she made these demos on a little four track recorder and a single microphone in her apartment. 
they flew her to whatever city they decided to make the big fancy record in the big fancy studio and hired a band and spent a ton of money. And then they threw it all in the trash and they released her demos. And that's the record because they couldn't do any better than what she did. Like what she did was so emotionally potent and vocally just outstanding that anything they would do to it was just clouding it up. I'm sure like at least someone was smart enough to be like, but they literally spent the money, made a whole record. And then they were like, nope release the demos and that's like what the label put out and it's one of the most like impressive lady folk demonstrations that's ever been in my opinion maybe the same thing will happen with what you recorded today it'll <laughs> just be that'll be it we joked about that we were like okay yeah. there's the album we're done <laughs> yeah, you never know it's happened before so um you told me um a few months ago when i mentioned that i really liked a greasy coat, which, uh, which I think sounds like a hardcore punk song that's been oh, yeah. that's that's being done by um, a bluegrass band, and I just I just love it. And um, you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's a traditional, and it's not a, a bluegrass song. So I wanted to know what the I didn't go to music school. Yeah, so. no, it's you just naturally good. It's it is a tr- it's a traditional tune, which just means that it was written so long ago that the songwriter has there's no one credited because also it usually oh. means there was like so many versions of it that it was kind of like a public domain. It was it's public domain, but it's, it's there's no songwriter either. It's like traditional. There was know, never a song. There was never a songwriter because okay. there was like probably tons of versions like there was mm-hmm. versions of, in like regional it was basically it means that that song existed before recording existed so there was an oral tradition song yeah. and it was all over the world or like in like you know european to america that little pipeline of culture and, and people yeah. um and yeah it existed before they were crediting songwriters so there's like ideas of like where it came from but there's no one person that, that has it because there's so many different versions at different times in history yeah and yeah it does feel like a punk rock song i totally agree straight ahead it's like minor threat you know yeah. it's like this it's it's badass and was that one of the songs that you played at your first gig yeah that was one of the songs we learned like very early on we we played um we had a 90 minute set was our first set. So we kind of had, we had a few rehearsals cause that's a lot, you know, as a musician to be like, okay, we've never been a band before. We need to come up with 90 minutes. So that's like 25 songs. Like that's yeah. a lot of songs. And so we each brought, you know, we keep it pretty democratic. So we each bring kind of the same amount of stuff. I'm guessing the singer of the given song is the one who brings. It. Exactly. And Joy mm-hmm. brought that one. Yeah. Totally. And she sings lead. And then she has such a, especially on that song. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead. That, Especially the first time that I was aware of you gals was was the video of that song that you recorded in some studio. Totally in Long Lot Cinder Sounds. Yeah. Totally. She has a Calamity Jane aspect mm. to her. And not totally. in the like, you know, you think she's going to fall down a flight of stairs because um, she's the town drunk. But <laughs> Calamity Jane came to mind. Just somebody who is a... Um, she seems like a musical outlaw to me. I completely agree. I think she would agree too. Like she grew up very classically trained and in and she has a doctorate in cello. She has played every Bach suite sonata. I don't even know if I'm saying the right shit because I'm such mm-hmm. a not a classical music kid. And she knows all of that. And then she was kind of in the classical world and was like, wow, I'm surrounded by people 
who hate playing music. Mm. This is miserable. Right. I hate it here too because no one's having fun. Yeah. And so she broke out of that through like old time music and through specifically old time through like learning that and learning, you know, improving in that vein and getting to like be free with it as opposed. And she still loves classical music and pulls from that vocabulary because it's so steeped in her and she has so much of that skill and technique. But then at the same time, I think that getting outside of that and getting to kind of create her own thing with old time music was like an aha moment for her that she was like, okay, now I'm going to chase this because these people are having fun and I want to have fun. Some people only know technique Mm -hmm. and and you put them in a setting, like whether it's like down home, uh, uh, country, bluegrass, whatever, or it's rock and roll or it's punk and they're on stage and you almost want to like grab them and shake them and be like, yo, let's have fun. Feel it. Let's do it. Like, come on, feel it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And there's people who that's kind of like, especially in the bluegrass world, like I feel like there are artists who that's their whole thing. And it's there's elements of it that I'm like, that's mesmerizing. That's absolutely yeah. breathtaking, the amount of proficiency and excellence that you have at what you do. And I'm spellbound. Yeah. But it usually for me lasts about three songs. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm bored. Yeah. Do something else. Yeah. I see how good you are. Show me show me something else. I believe you're a good musician. Yeah, I believe I you're really believe good. <laughs> You've convinced me. <laughs> what what is your number four choice? Number four record is I'm going in order of when they came into my life. So the next one is Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy, which is wow. like 80s Dylan. Most of the time is a great, great song. Oh God. Yeah. Every single song on that is like Everything's broken. Everything's broken. Political world. Ring them bells. Mm-hmm. I love. I just love that whole. Um, yeah, that's just one of my favorite records. It. It actually got into Bob Dylan in a really weird way because my dad is a total Dylan file. Loves him. And I always knew of him and was like, oh yeah, those are cool songs. Yeah, whatever. But then when Bob Dylan, <laughs> so fucking weird. When Bob Dylan did that Victoria's Secret commercial, do you remember that? It was terrifying. It was horrifying, yeah. right? Yeah. But I was at Victoria's Secret, the store, and there was a discount bin of Bob Dylan CDs, (laughs) and it was just Bob Dylan. It was called Love Songs, and it was 10 Bob Dylan songs that were about love. Was Love Sick on it? Love Sick was on there. Um, Shooting Star. um, I don't know if I can name all the ones off that, but I remember getting – I worked at a mall at that point in my life. I worked at Collin Creek Mall. I worked at the Hot Dog on a Stick. I made corn dogs for people at a stand in the mall, and that was my teenage job. And I got off of work and had bought that CD and went in my car and put it in. I sat in the parking lot and listened to the whole thing and like wept and was just like, holy shit, my dad was onto something. I didn't know. (laughs) But um, it totally like changed my, my like songwriter life. Like I felt like I, it made me want to write songs more. It made me go down that avenue and be like, I can do this too. Look at how much this guy has done it. I've got to be able to do it. He's like, he can, you know, he seems just to have like infinite songs that he's written, right? And mm-hmm. and I feel like the challenging part about songs as a songwriter in the beginning was like, how do I start? And it's kind of like looking at him gave me like the idea of like, well, just do it. Like it seems like he just does it. Like yeah. it's like second nature to him. So just embrace the like unknown and just write a song. Like He doesn't can, even spend that much time on no, songs. No, it seems like and they seem people. like they can be about anything. Yeah. Literally, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely anything. So yeah. that was inspiring to me because I wanted to 
be able to have that same freedom with songwriting that I felt like I could have with other elements of performing. And so he definitely, you know, provided that. And then when I found Oh Mercy, it's just like that first track, Political World. First of all, it's one chord, the whole song. It's just F sharp minor. There's never a chord change. He does like a little lick, but there's absolutely no chord change. And there's almost never a bridge in a Dylan song. No, there's just, yeah, there's just verse, 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 verse. Mm-hmm. Political world is one of those. And as a kid who was like really politically engaged and a young adult who still feels politically engaged, I'm a little bit more tired now, I would say, politically, but mm-hmm. I still feel engaged. Um, that song really spoke to me. Um, it's rocking too. Like, oh, and it's not rocking. in a rock way, but in a rock and roll Yes. Wait, like the little Richard sort of. Yes. You know. Well, well, there's like this yeah. cool like guitar like reverby thing that's yeah. just like a chord hit that's like that's the lick the whole time and it happens between each verse. And That was the first album that he made with uh, uh, Daniel Lanois. Oh, okay. Too. And I have to say I'd like to have a, if it was me, I'd like to have a Daniel Lanois album if I was locked in a cabin and zombies were around, you know. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's just so lush. Yeah, no, I thought that it's it's a soundscape and it's, I love all, there's, Dylan has so much color and so much different things that he does with his voice. Like, I think he's very underrated as a singer and people give him a lot of shit. They're like, well, Bob Dylan can sing, anybody can sing. And it's like, "Mm, I believe anybody can sing, but you don't have to like do that as like putting Bob Dylan down. Like, I really enjoy his voice as a singer and think that it's incredibly emotionally effective and unique. Yeah, you crazy unique. (laughs) Heck yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. The second you hear like the first three words, you're like, that's Bob Dylan. Yeah. And that's a cool thing to aspire to. Mm-hmm. So the the space that you seem to be in right now as a band, Big Richard, is that all of a sudden it took off as this live thing. And, you know, word got out all over the state and now all over the country as well. This is this incredible live band. And now you kind of got to make a record. So you're, I mean, you have four songwriters in the band. Mm-hmm. Yep, four songwriters. And you've had your whole lives up to this point to write songs. So what goes on the record? Well, we have, we definitely have, like, we're each bringing stuff from our own personal repertoire and, like, experience. And then we've started co-writing, which has been really fun. Um, we learned one of those soon Tuesday. It's maybe like the first big Richard co-write. I think it is like, um, which I feel like, I don't know. The cool part about big Richard is like the array of colors that we offer and kind of like everybody has their own style. And then we kind of rotate through that and have this like almost like variety hour of musical presentation so it's very much not like hey we have one singer who sings on the songs and they all have a similar bend it's like when I sing it goes one way when Emma sings it goes another way when Joy sings it goes another way and Eve's brought we learned two Eve instrumentals today so it's like so badass to be like yes Eve fiddle tunes yes girl so it's really fun to see I feel like everyone's samplings of what they brought previous to this is a good indicator of like how they write like we're all very stylized um, and so we have kind of our, our lanes of style and luckily it makes a beautiful, right. powerful four lane highway. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. like, I feel like it's, we all have like our own things we do and we support each other in those things, but we're able to be like really parallel and congruent with them. Yeah. So that's kind of how it's gone. I was debating with my kid earlier is 
Big Richard, the Spice Girls of Bluegrass, or the Powerpuff Girls oh my God. of well, Bluegrass. It's so funny. <laughs> Joy has, Joy's obsessed with skiing. Like we call her, we all have male alter egos in the band, and her male alter ego is Ski Boy. And he's just like a stoner who lives in his mom's basement, smokes weed all the time. But our sound human named Amanda, who's like done a bunch of sound for Big Richard and is kind of our go-to engineer, um, live engineer, her and Joy have a ski club called the Powder Puff Girls. Nice. And they ski powder and then puff weed. And nice. it's awesome. That sounds like a song right there, too. <laughs> right. For sure. We're like, we need the Powder Puff anthem. <laughs> Before I ask you your fifth and, and final choice i just wanted to see if you could describe the feeling of having your band's really first proper ticketed show be the gothic theater and you sold it out like what the hell yeah that doesn't happen no that does not happen as a person who's been in this business for 15 years that has never happened to me before and it i mean it's incredibly humbling in one way because you're just like wow all these people care like it makes you feel like like, it literally makes me want to cry because our fans have been, they're really driving this crazy train. Like, musically, it's awesome. But there's, as you and I both know, there's lots of bands that are musically awesome that don't get the same reception and the same excitement and momentum from the scene, from the side of fans. You know, yeah. it's like we all work really hard to get people to come to our shows. And I've done that for a long time. So to have a project that, like people are like, ISO, one ticket for Gothic, Big Richard, uh, like they're searching for their tickets online mm-hmm. and like they're like trading them and like that blows my mind. And it is so flattering and like gratifying in, you know, in a way that I didn't, I mean, I don't really need it. Like I don't want to say I need it, but it's like filled a, Big Richard has filled a hole in me. <laughs> Like, everything is a that's what she, she said. I know, it really Richard. is. Everything is a penis joke. That's what yeah, this band has yeah. taught me. Absolutely everything is a penis joke. But it really has, like in our fans, we have crazy motivated fans that just, I mean. They, they bring dicks to the shows. They bring dicks too. to the shows. They print stickers for every show. They print mm-hmm. t-shirts for every show. They sell them to each other. And like do like, like one person will print a bunch of shirts and they'll say like, I came for Big Richard at the such and such or whatever, like whatever. Or I came for Big Richard I came for Big Richard and Bush, like when we played with Sam Bush, like mm-hmm. that. And Sam Bush even was like, what is all these shirts? Like, <laughs> where, what is going on here? And like that, that fan momentum is so valuable. And so it's just not something that we can control as musicians. And we all know it because we've all tried to control it. We've all tried to drum it up and make it happen. Yeah. So to have it actually happening organically is incredible. Like it's something I've, you know, waited my whole life for in one way like to actually have it's like the fantasy level thing where you're like wow it also i feel like has made me such a better mandolin player because i used to be kind of like oh i play the mandolin whatever but i mostly sing like i'm really a singer i'm not a mandolin player like nobody cares about me playing the mandolin and having that like being proved like not true to me like being like no people care about yeah they do me playing the mandolin and they cheer for it and they're into it has like maybe be like well maybe i can do it better and like then they cheer again I'm like well maybe i can do it better and it's like started this like crazy exponential relationship with that instrument for myself that i did not have before that i kind of like treated it as like a little side piece of like mm, yeah this is a cool texture but it's not like singing is my thing and now i'm like no i'm freaking mandolin is my thing too you're like, a home run hitter 
I'm, I, it's so exciting to be yeah. able to like be in a band that I'm the drummer. Like I'm the drummer in that band. Me yeah. and Emma are the drums together, bass and snare. Yeah. And like, as you know, like drums are pretty potent. Like they are maybe the most debatably the most like controlling factor in any musical situation. There is no more true statement in music than your band is only as good as its drummer. Totally. Because the whole thing could be great and the drummer's all over the place. Totally. Like, oh, this kind of sucks. Totally, because drums are just so pervasive. They're so, like, all-encompassing and they just dominate everything. So it feels really cool because I played with drums for so long to not have that and to have that role instead and be like, no, now I'm dominating. Now I'm the one who's, like, driving this train with, like, and, like, getting to, like, really put a lot of force behind that. And I also just, like, I do everything pretty, like, I, like, I'm an overdoer. Like, when I do things, I go all the way and then some. And with mandolin, I feel like there's room for that. Like, it's such a wildly percussive and, like, explosive instrument. Where sometimes on guitar, like, I'll play the guitar so hard, like, and Taylor, my means, like, you're overplaying it. It's, like, getting rattly. Like, you're playing too hard, you know? And I like appreciate that feedback because he's an amazing guitar player. He mm-hmm. totally knows what he's talking about. But like with mandolin, you really there's an element of like you can do that, but you also can't. Like you can just thrash on it, and it takes it because it's so percussive. And like, you need a good sound person too. You need a good sound person, and you mm-hmm. need a good mandolin. If you have like a hundred dollar mandolin, you can overplay it and it just sounds like change in a jar, just being shook, just right. like shaking. Yeah. So I got an Tay was like really. When I was 30, when I turned 30, I've had the same mandolin since I was 16. Wow. And I, like, got it built for me by this guy in Richardson who was, like, a small builder. And I loved it. It was called a siren mandolin. And I felt very, like, connected to, like, the idea of, like, oh, it's a siren. I'm a siren. Look, a pair of sirens. Like, and I loved that mandolin. But it wasn't a, like, it was, like, you know, like a $2,000 instrument, which if you know mandolins, that's a like a mid to low level, Hmm. even though it's like, that's a lot of money. I'm not saying $2,000 isn't a lot of money, but if you want a really good mandolin, you have to spend like $10,000 to $15,000. And yeah, they're expensive. Kind of like a violin. Yeah, exactly. It's Mm -hmm. like a violin. Like they just are super unique and they're all handcrafted. And it takes like, like the builder that I finally got one from, um, Tay took me shopping for my birthday for a mandolin in Nashville. We like flew to Nashville to buy me a mandolin. We spent five days going around to every music store, playing every single mandolin. He's a keeper, that, that tale. Yeah, he is, 100%. <laughs> and found the one that, like, really spoke to me and bought it. And it changed my life because having a, having an instrument that expects more of you is life-changing. Like, it, yeah. it raised my playing infinitely. I felt like I was instantly a better mandolin player because I had a better mandolin. And, like... A little bit I say like my other mandolin was like I was running with ankle weights. Like I was training. I was getting ready to run fast. But then when I got this mandolin, I popped those ankle weights off and now I can fly. And like having that new instrument. And like I didn't, you know, Big Richard didn't start till I was like 33. So it's like I had a couple years nurturing that relationship with that particular piece of wood and me. Did you talk to it and kind of, you know, say, look, I'm really sorry. (laughs) The other mandolin? The, The old one. I... I do, and I I still have it, and I let other people play it. Like, when someone's like, I need a mandolin that's like, I have this really crappy mandolin, and I want to, like, play the mandolin. I'm like, I have one for you. Let me hook you up. Like, you can't have it, but you can use this for six months or whatever. Play it. It needs to be played. Go ahead and take it. So I've done that to a lot of musicians who, like, want to, like, sample the mandolin, just Mm -hmm. want a little taste. But it's really hard to get into, like, a cheap mandolin because they just don't sound good. Like, cheap guitars can sound amazing. Yeah. Like, you can get a $100 guitar, and it can be 
amazing. But like cheap you can, drums too. I yeah. mean, if you tune them right. But you cannot cheap mandolins like they mm. do not work. I think it's because there's the, you know, the pairs of strings and for them to be like completely in tune with each other, it has to be a better instrument. Otherwise, you're just play, It's just everything sounds out of tune, which is disappointing to a new player. So, you're going to be playing um, a show with Taylor coming up at at the Bluebird, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, that'll be um, Bonnie and Taylor Sims Band. We're opening for a really good friend's um, CD release show. Her name's Angie Stevens. She is someone who has played in Denver for the past. Um, 15 years, but took off the last few years um, to deal with a cancer diagnosis and to fight cancer. Um, so this is her big comeback show, her first record in six years. And yeah, she's just one of those voices. She's got a very like high chest voice that's very like reminiscent of Dolly to me that I love singing with people like that because I feel I have a lower voice for a female. Like I just do. I mean, I can sing high, but it's like I like to touch on it and come back down. I don't like key mm-hmm. stuff up like where I'm high the whole time. Um, and so she's really fun to sing with because I can just sing harmonies under her. It makes me feel like, you know, like I got a lot of room to play because she's, yeah. you know, dominating on top and she just has really engaging songs and she's a really heartfelt performer. So it was really, whenever she asked us to do this, I was like, oh, hell yes, Angie, love that you're making a new record. Totally want to be a part of that. Let's do it. And I really want to play the Bluebird. I've only ever played there. One time when there was like a Westward um, showcase, showcase mm-hmm. for the like the awards thing, yeah. Because Bonnie and the Clyde's won like best country band in like I think twenty twelve and twenty thirteen, yeah. Um, before they stopped letting people just win it over and over again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we played like one song, and I remember being like, "God, I want to play a gig there! Like, what a cool space!" It's a cool place because it's actually really small. It's yeah. a theater. It's like super intimate, but especially when you're on stage. You realize there's a balcony, but. You can fit almost no one in the balcony. So it's a theater, but it only fits 500. Yeah, exactly totally. 500. Yeah, it's like a small a small space that feels really intimate and has a lot of like cool history. Like tons of bands that I love have played the Bluebird and done done cool shows at the Bluebird. So I was really... It's over 100 years old, too. Oh, my God. I it did is. not know that. Yeah. That's dope. Yeah, yeah. So probably a lot more bands than I know have yeah. played the Bluebird. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. So one last question is um you know you got your five albums and you got your um fear and sadness and all that happening and you can take one item with you as long as you can carry it with you when you're running away from your home you know you would take i would take this guitar you take a guitar over a mandolin for sure, I would take. Well, I love my mandolin, but this guitar—it's a Martin, right? It's a Martin, and my dad bought it when he was 14 years old in New York, in the Poughkeepsie, New York. He traded it for a K banjo and fifty dollars. Wow! And I started playing guitar, you know, when I was 11, and I played for a few years. And then when I was 14, he just came in my room one day, and he was like, "Hey, come here." I was like, "What? What did I do?" And I went with him. He's like, "Because I had a Sigma, which is a totally decent, awesome acoustic guitar." Um, and he was just like, you're better than that guitar now and you need to have this one. And he just like opened the closet and this was in there and he gave it to me. Wow. Um, so I could never have another instrument that my dad played when he was a teenager. So like that, it has a lot of sentimental value to me. And if you look, I'm going to show you. Yeah. Like it has, because he was a 14 year old, he took a marker and wrote his name in the sound hole. Oh. So like whenever, and Emma plays this guitar a lot in Big Richard too. And like, so whenever 
she's playing it, I can like see his name in it. It makes me just feel so good. Um, so I definitely would take that guitar. Even though I love my mandolin. I really yeah. do love the mandolin. Mandolin's so fun. But the mandolin's really fun to play with other people. And the guitar is like, I could play it by myself forever. Right. 100%. I could play the mandolin by myself and I can practice. But it's not the same like full support that guitar is. Yeah. Wait, and I have to tell you my fifth album. I didn't tell you yet. Oh, shit. That's right. Yeah, you didn't. Yeah. Okay. So this is my left turn album. So I was saving it okay. for the end. Because it's the one that's most recent and I freaking love it. Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly. Oh, nice. 100% hands down. Best best record I've heard in like 10 years, like as far as being a, just like the most, and I don't even have the cultural context to understand it. Like I'm completely like, I'm a white girl. I have no idea about the black experience in America, but I feel like that record opens the, they're like, focuses the lens on that in a way that I did not have before emotionally and musically like gives you this portal into it and I absolutely love it it's like my I listen to it every time I get on an airplane because I don't really like flying but when I listen to that record I feel like I can do anything so I'm just like uh, like on the on the airplane in my chair like dancing a little bit like yeah. just totally I go completely immersed and I think that rap is very underrated as a vocal style I feel like people think oh rapping's not singing but he does stuff with his voice on that record that is like out of this world good to me like vocally just emotionally expressive and uses his voice in the most like fearless way just the whole palette the whole palette of the human voice and doesn't just sing to make it pretty or make it right right but literally screams and does it in the most effective way and it's fucking life-changing like that record because we were talking about this and you were like which five records i listened to the whole thing this morning driving up to joys yeah and I was just like, God, I love this album so much. Like, I love it. And he has a bunch of albums that could easily go on this list. Yep. No, I mean, he has a bunch incredible. of good ones. He is incredible. Yeah. He's an incredible artist and songwriter. I think that, yeah, rap is just so, I feel like a lot of people as musicians are like, oh, this is the music. But it's like, to me, it's one of the most musical forms. Because again, it's like, they've abandoned melody and they're embracing like rhythm and speech mm -hmm. in a way that, and not abandoned melody. There's still melodic elements and there's obviously harmonization that's happening underneath it. But I think it sounds to me, and as I'm not a rapper, obviously, again, small white girl, not that you can't be a rapper, but you probably can't be <laughs> just like culturally speaking, like maybe not the best like costume to try on. As far like as you costumes. could, but should, but should you, you could, but should you <laughs> like, unless you're Eminem and you have like mm. verifiable, like social ties to, those kind of like that kind of element if you're rapping and you're like you know grew up super privileged and with like a you know it just is a funny it's a funny like thing to put on and, and pretend i think that it's yeah. like um but i think that like rap is like just so freaking like challenging like it to me is like one of the most like ultimate forms of musical art because it's just like rapid fire poetry and there's yeah. so much like internal rhyme and the structure of the sentences and the amount that they write to be a song. It's like right. 10 times, 50 times what a song is, like a Fleetwood Mac song, like the amount of words and the amount of like thoughts in that versus the amount of thoughts in a, in a Kendrick Lamar track is like, damn, you know, it's explosive. Well, I'm, ex I'm excited to hear the Kendrick Lamar influence on, on the Big Richard debut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. And, um, Congratulations on your 15-year overnight success. 
Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. I appreciate that recognition. It's so true. Thanks, Bob. Uh, thanks, Adam. I'll give you another hour then. Gotta run. Gotta that was Bonnie Sims of Big Richard, Everybody Loves an Outlaw, and the Bonnie and Taylor Sims Band. Those groups all have a lot of stuff coming up that's really exciting, you know, from shows to tours internationally to stuff that I know about that I can't really share about certain Netflix shows, <laughs> but also albums. Um, so I hope you really check them out everywhere. Um, and also, thank you so much to the, the Gold Hill Inn as well as Moncton Guitars for sponsoring this episode. Um, Moncton is a little shop in Broomfield in between Boulder and Denver that honestly is just as good as every other guitar shop around here as far as setups and repairs and everything, but less expensive and faster. They have a holiday store-wide sale from December 1st to December 10th, 15 to 20% off just about everything. And they also have a shop small business thing going on Saturday, November 26th. So check that out. Um, I'm Adam, and happy Thanksgiving to everybody, um, except my friends in Scotland, because they probably don't care about that. But um, anyway, thanks for listening, and please correspond with us. Let me know what I could do better. Uh, Milehighstash at gmail.com. We'll talk with you soon. Without you. Well, I wish that were true. And I wish that were you sitting across from me instead of this impersonation of the room.